Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. I'm really looking forward to recording this episode because I'm going to be talking extensively on Rand Fishkin's article that he published this week. I don't know if you saw it, but he's basically talking about something that he calls inferred links, which to me is essentially mentions, places where people on the internet are talking about you, but perhaps not actually linking to you. And Rand had this theory that this type of inferred link could actually be more valuable than an actual link in many cases. So when I read Rand's article, there were several places where SEOs that they've been in the business for a long time were arguing that, oh, this theory on inferred links, it's not going to work for many reasons. And I actually think that most of those objections that they came up with can be solved with our knowledge of what's in the quality raters guidelines and also some of the recent stuff that Google's put out in publications. So stay tuned. I really think this is going to be an interesting episode to listen to. This episode of the podcast corresponds to Search News You Can Use, episode number 167. You can find that at mariehaines.com slash newsletter. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that I've been playing around with the format for podcast. So initially, I used to just read the newsletter. And then I started adding in my own thoughts. And then when podcasts became way too long with me trying to do everything, I decided to do things a little bit differently. So I'm going to be focusing mostly on the stuff that's important to my day-to-day job. And that's figuring out rankings, talking about EAT, learning about how the information in the quality raters guidelines can be used to our benefit and also anything to do with link quality. Um, But I also heard from several of you last week that you really missed me sharing about the most important SEO news from the last week. Uh, So I'm going to see if I can find some kind of a balance between the two and I'll share what you really need to know, but also talk about some of our theories on how Google's working these days. You know, I saw a great tweet from Aleda Solis this morning. She said, reminder, SEO is not optimizing for search engines. SEO is optimizing for potential users, clients, customers, readers looking for your services or products or information via search engines so they can find you and choose you instead of your competitors. And I think a lot of SEOs have lost sight of this goal. For many years, SEO has really been synonymous with how can I trick Google or other search engines into thinking that my website deserves to be actually ranked better than my competitors. And I think that with each update Google does, they're getting better and better at making it so that you just can't fake your way to the top anymore. Um, And speaking of faking your way to the top, let's start by talking about this comment from John Mueller this week in a help hangout. John was asked about the authenticity of backlinks that are included in paid content that seem to be highly relevant or content that's uh, basically PR, so news articles. Specifically, what he was asked about, though, was the type of content where you pay an SEO agency to write stuff for your website, and then they get that published all around the web, and it produces backlinks. So why do we do that as SEOs? It's because historically, it's worked. It's been a while since I talked with uh, my friend, Paul McNamara, but when when I first started getting really, really busy and doing a whole bunch of audit work, I used to refer all of my overflow to Paul and Paul, I used to share these amazing stories about the old days of SEO and some of the OG optimizers, they've made millions of dollars 
off of the backs of unnatural links <laughs> because that's what Google's algorithm was built on. It was built on links. Google became the more dominant search engine because they realized that links are a good proxy for recommendations. The quality raters guidelines, they talk a lot about how important it is to have recommendations from people who are seen as experts in your field. So if one of my employees or maybe a friend of mine wrote a blog post and they linked to me saying, uh, Marie Haynes is an incredible SEO expert. Well, maybe that link would carry some value. But what if search engine land wrote about an article, they wrote an article and they didn't actually link to me, but they called me an SEO expert. Which of those actually speaks more to my expertise? In the past, a link from a blog article that was keyword anchored, it might carry more weight than just an unlinked mention from search engine land. And as SEOs, we saw that type of thing working. You know, I was speaking on Twitter recently about one of my mentors, Eagle. Eagle used to be incredibly active on the Moz forums and in the SEO chat forums in the days when I was trying to learn the basics of SEO. Um, and so he was the one who started encouraging me to make resources for website owners who had suffered traffic drops. The more I learned, the more I published and fast forward to today, we have a successful SEO company. But I remember the day that I told him that I had discovered the power of guest posts. It was probably about 2014, I'd say. I was working on a website for a family member and I reached out to some local blog uh, here in Ottawa and offered to write a guest post for them. Um, and it was amazing how just, I, I think I did like just a small handful of guest posts. This actually pushed uh, this family member's site up to number one rankings. It worked really, really well, but that was 2014. And I feel like many of you who are listening to this podcast, you're still doing link building like it's 2014. So in a minute, I'm going to share some stuff from Google's video on trillions of questions. Uh, it shows really how far advanced Google's become when it comes to understanding whether a link is a recommendation or, or not. Um, and so I know some of you who are listening to this, you're doing work where you're getting articles written and you're publishing them so that you can produce backlinks for either your website or your client's websites. And it's really, really hard to stop doing that because for some of you, that's the main tool in your toolbox. It's pretty easy to sell link building to clients. So if this is you, I'd urge you to take a look at your client's analytics and truly ask yourself whether those links have value beyond SEO. Look at your referral traffic. How many of the links that you built actually brought customers to your client's website? Now, some of those referral links will bring bot traffic, bot as in B-O-T, not purchased bot, B-A-U-G-H-T. What you're really looking for though is not like the, the numbers of traffic, but rather whether the traffic that comes through those links actually stays engaged with your website and even better, whether they convert. Uh, we're working right now on uh, implementing some conversion tracking for our own website. I'll fully admit it's an area that I'm not 100% comfortable in, but if you're selling products on your website, you really should be tracking those conversions and you should be measuring whether your outreach efforts are actually resulting in conversions. So for example, let's say I guest post for Moz. Oh gee, I promised them a blog post several months ago. I, I need to do that. Um, and I really, I need to do that not because I need a link from Moz, rather a lot of my audience, it reads Moz's website. 
And when I publish an article there, it causes me to grow my audience and teach my audience more. I can look at my Google Analytics referral traffic and I can see this many hundred people clicked through my link uh, from my author bio on Moz and engaged with my site. And even though I haven't written anything for Moz for probably a few years now, I'm still getting emails from people uh, that said, hey, I've written, every I've read everything you've written on Moz and I'm a big fan of yours and hey, I wanna hire you. So if you're guest posting and your content marketing and you're spreading around content for the purpose of getting links and it's not actually resulting in your business making more money, then there's a good chance that these links are just being completely ignored by Google. I'm going to get off the soapbox now. I, I feel like I'm probably making enemies in the SEO world. I, you know, I wrote an article in like 2012 or 13 or so, again for Moz, uh, and it was called Our SEOs Destroying Small Businesses. This was after uh, I had been doing some work uh, with websites that were affected by the Penguin algorithm, and that was almost a decade ago. Um, I'm going to leave this topic now, but I really want to finish with answering a question that probably some of you have, and that's whether you need to be using the disavow tool if you've built links just for the purpose of SEO. There's really no black and white answer to this. Um, we do offer a service where my team can look at your links and they can give their opinion on whether they're likely to get you in hot water with Google. Um, but if the vast majority of the links that are pointing to your website are ones that are made for SEO, then you can be at risk for getting a manual action for unnatural links. And trust me, you do not want to get a manual action. Lately, they've been really, really hard to remove. Uh, and I've been removing manual actions for a long time now. You, you really do not want to get one. It's taking uh, months now to get responses from Google. And even then, uh, it, it's very challenging to get these removed now. We're still managing to get them removed, but uh, it takes a lot more work than it used to. Um, so even if you don't get an uh, a manual action, there's still a chance that those unnatural links are causing your site to be suppressed. If you want to read more on that, uh, you can Google about our, we have a post on disavow, disavow advice for 2019 and beyond. Um, and I guess now that we're in 2020, I need to update that. That's, that's one of my chores for, uh, at some point in the next couple of months is to go through all of the content on, uh, mariehaines.com and, uh, and make sure that it's up to date. Uh, we've produced a lot of content over the years, so it's a, a pretty big task for me. So speaking of content creation, and, and don't get me wrong, we should all be creating fantastic content that has purpose well beyond creating links. I wanted to share with you a little bit about this tweet from Hrefs this week. And yes, this is the sponsored section of podcast episode. Uh, this tweet was talking about their historical graphs um, in the top pages section of Hrefs. This is a little bit hard to explain over a podcast, uh, but you can see some images in newsletter if you want more on this. So with Ahrefs, you can look at any keyword or at least any keyword with decent search volume, and you can see historical rankings for it in a chart. I found this really, really useful when I was looking for sites, looking at sites that saw a decline after a core update. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to find keywords that are important and for which the site is ranked relatively well for at least several months and then saw a decline with a core update, the most recent being the December core update. And then we also look at which competitors improved while our client declined. 
and try to figure out why. And we do that based on our uh, studying of the quality raters guidelines, based on things that Google has said, either in help hangouts, um, just trying to, you know, we've collected clues over the years of things that Google tends to value in terms of quality on websites. So the charts from Ahrefs really, really make finding this info uh, easy. So what I'll do is I'll start by inputting our client's URL, and then I can click on a, a, a menu option from Ahrefs called Movements. And Ahrefs shows me every single day which keywords increased or decreased or we're completely even lost from rankings. So if a site was hit on December 3rd, I can look at keyword rankings that lost rankings on the third or maybe a day or two following, because that sometimes happens. And I can even filter it just to see keywords that used to rank on the first page. Or sometimes what I'll do is say, I just want to see keywords that ranked in the top three positions and then dropped out of those rankings, because that's where you're going to see the biggest impact in terms of uh, money coming into your business. And I can click on any of those keywords in Ahrefs to see historical rankings for the past two years in a chart form. So it shows me where keyword rankings shifted for all of the top sites and on what dates. And after you've done this for a while, it's pretty easy to see the patterns and to see which keywords and which sites really did well after a core update. So the tweet that Ahrefs sent this week was talking about how you can look at your competitors and there's a chart that tells you how much content is currently indexed for a site, which is really, really cool. If you see that a competitor has suddenly uh, a whole bunch of new content indexed, then you should be taking a look to see what is their strategy. What are they trying to accomplish? You may not always want to duplicate it because maybe they had a bunch of new content indexed because they were hacked or something. Um, but usually if a competitor has published a whole bunch of new content, this is a sign that you should be paying attention to because they're probably trying something new in terms of marketing. Um, and so you can look at it and say like, is this something that we should be doing too? We've also summarized in newsletter a great article from Patrick Stocks from Ahrefs, uh, and he writes uh, about exactly how Ahrefs gathers and stores data. So if you're interested in that, that's in uh, our recommended reading section of newsletter. Which reminds me, I haven't got to listen yet to Gary Eish and to John Mueller and Martin Splitz. They did another episode of Search Off the Record podcast. So it came out yesterday and I've been trying really hard to get podcasts done for today. So I haven't heard the whole thing. But I did read Barry Schwartz's article on Search Engine Roundtable where he picked out a section that Gary Eish said talking about the diversity of Google's index and how Google stores information. So I don't think this tip will specifically help anyone, but it's really, really interesting. Um, we know that Google's data is stored on many, many servers. I remember seeing something somewhere that uh, one of the biggest costs for Google was cooling because they have these rooms and rooms of computers that are just spitting out heat as they do their work. Um, and so Gary said, well, they have different ways that they can store data on those servers. And some of those ways are cheap, and some of those are super expensive for Google. And he called these indexing tiers. He went on to say that the bulk of the index is stored on something that's cheap, it's accessible, it's easily replaceable, and it doesn't break the bank for Google. Uh, but then documents that Google knows that they're gonna have to service like every second, so really, really popular pages on the web, uh, they might end up on something super fast like RAM. Uh, and so I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna go into more details on 
that. Obviously, that's not an area of expertise for me, but it really felt important to me. Uh, I don't think it's news that we can actively act on, but still very, very interesting. Another piece of news that's been circulating this week is that the old disavow tool is going away. That sounds kind of like big news, right? But it's not. Uh, As of yesterday, so I'm recording this on the 20th of January, on the 19th of January, Google sunsetted the old version of the disavow tool. But the new version uh, is still alive and well, and really there's very little difference between the old version and the new. Uh, The new is just a little more polished. Um, You can see a little bit more info once you've submitted a file, but it's essentially the same. So not much has changed here, but I know when I first read the headline, I don't remember if it was on Search Engine Roundtable or where I read it, but it really sounded like the disavow tool was going away and uh, it's still here. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about Rand Fishkin's article. So Rand hasn't written about SEO for a while. Uh, And if you haven't read his article called Inferred Links Will Replace the Link Graph, you really should. Uh, I, I read it, when I read it, I realized that everything Rand was saying because this is basically like this theory that he has about inferred links or mentions. And remember, Gary Ish, uh, 2017, told us that EAT is heavily based on links and also mentions across the web. So when Rand wrote about this, it, it, it really was in line with my theories on what's been happening with Google's algorithms. And most of the spots where there was a gap in Rand's theory, I feel like they can be filled with information Um, from either the quality raters guidelines or Google's recent video on trillions of searches. I'm going to share some stuff with you on that in a minute, which is really exciting. And also other Google resources that they've published. So let's talk first about what Rand is calling an inferred link. Another way to talk about these would be like calling it an unlinked mention. I really think these are the same thing. So the example that Rand gives is two different pieces of content that are talking about a particular cardigan from Pendleton's. That sounds like I'm trying to do some weird kind of alliteration or something like a particular pullover from Pendleton's is proudly promoted by publishers. Okay, I'm going to stop with the alliteration now. But seriously, if you let's look at the two mentions of this cardigan that Rand points out. The first is an article that says, In its price range, I don't think there's a better cardigan you can buy than Pendleton's Westerly. There's no link here. It's just a recommendation. The second is an article about cardigans that contains the link, uh, contains a link. And it says, check out Pendleton's selection of men's cardigans. And the anchor text in that link is men's cardigans. If both of those mentions came from websites that you'd see as authoritative, which one would you want? the inferred mention that doesn't have a link or the one that has a link with anchor text. I think most of us are trained to say that the link from an authoritative place with a keyword anchor text is probably going to help us rank better than an unlinked mention, even on an authoritative website. But what if I change the question? And instead of me saying, which link would you want? If I asked you, which of the above is more likely to be a legitimate recommendation for these cardigans? Because Google wants to count links because they're recommendations. And again, as Randa said before, links are kind of a proxy for recommendations. Google's guideline on how they fight disinformation tells us that PageRank is very closely tied 
to authoritativeness. And we know that PageRank is all about links. Links have always been very important in Google's algorithms. Links past PageRank, PageRank is very important when it comes to helping Google understand which sites to rank highly. So let's go back to ask, what is it that Google's trying to accomplish with their search engine? And the answer that probably jumped into most people's minds or some people's minds probably is that Google just wants to make a lot of money. And you're not wrong. I mean, they make the most money though, by continually providing users with the results that they're looking for and know the results. They're not always perfect, but I think they're getting much, much better. So in Rand's post, he linked to a Quora thread from nine years ago. And the thread, the question that was asked is why is machine learning used heavily for Google's ad ranking and less for their search ranking? Again, this was nine years ago. The answer that was highlighted by Quora was from former Google engineer, Edmund Lau. And it's the most interesting one that was discussed in Rand's article. I'm going to leave you to go to Rand's article to read that. I, I don't want to, um, I, I want you to actually read this article and not just take my interpretation of it, because I think we're going to be talking about this for quite some time. Um, so in the article, he shares about how Amit Singhal, uh, who was at Google at the time was against using machine learning uh, to determine rankings. But there was also this answer from somebody named Jackie Bavaro. And as a side note, I just noticed something really cool that Quora is doing that probably speaks to their EAT. Next to Jackie's answer, because I was trying to figure out, well, who is this Jackie person? And, and, it, and I found that out. I'll tell you that in a minute. But next to her answer, uh, it has a little note from Quora and it says upvoted by... And it lists people who upvoted her answer, including a PhD student in machine learning and Vladimir Novikovsky, who started Quora's machine learning team. That's really smart. And that's probably something that speaks to EAT, to the Quora's EAT, to point out that experts are recommending this answer. Uh, those of you who run any sort of user-generated content, uh, especially forums, pay attention to that. If you have, let's say you ran uh, an SEO forum and um, you know somebody asks a question about EAT and I come in and I upvote that question. Well, a searcher who's reading that uh, will say, ah, oh, yes, I recognize that Marie Haynes, or maybe they do, uh, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but maybe they recognize that Marie Haynes is known as somebody who understands EAT. And if I upvoted that question, that gives more credence to the question. So going back to this question, Jackie says she was on Google's search team from 2008 to 2010. And she talks about how at the time, many of the groups in search at Google, they drifted away from machine learning systems away, not towards away. That's really interesting. Uh, so like 10 years ago, the teams at Google were drifting away from machine learning systems. But she went on to say, that is to say that Google search used to use more machine learning. And then we went the other direction because the team realized they could make faster improvements to search quality with a rules-based system. It's not just a bias. It's something that many sub teams out of search tried and preferred. So the argument, uh, that Amit Singhal had and that other people who argued against using machine learning in search was that, uh, machine learning would introduce the bias of, uh, people who, uh, whatever the, the machine learning set was based on. So if Google got information from their quality raters and, um, maybe all of their quality raters had, uh, or a big portion of them had a specific bias 
in a, a religious sense, a political sense, or some other way, that that maybe could uh, start being uh, shown in Google search results. And that's not uh, what they want to have happen. Um, now, this was Jackie's post was uh, she said she worked for Google in 2008 to 2010. And I would imagine at that time, search teams were working on the precursors to Panda and Penguin. I mean, Panda came out 2011, right? Penguin 2012. And they were probably finding like lots of different ways to improve search. So let's think of Penguin for a second. Penguin was very much a rules-based algorithm. At least I think it is. You know, we've asked uh, multiple times whether Penguin, uh, whether machine learning was used in Penguin. And I believe Gary Ish, probably other Googlers as well, have told us no, machine learning was not used in Penguin. So rules-based is the the thing that I want to kind of get across here. Rules kind of means, well, well, let's look at it this way. The, the types of links that I used to disavow when we first got the disavow tool, they were ones that you could really easily write a rules-based algorithm to catch. Um, so Gary Ish, he told us in a podcast a few years ago, you can find this on search engine land, that Google has all of your links labeled. He said, I'm going to quote him here. Basically, we have tons of link labels. For example, it's a footer link. Basically, that has a lot lower value than an in-content link. Then another label would be a penguin real-time label. If they see that most of the links are Penguin real-time labeled, then they might actually take a deeper look and see what the content owner is trying to do. Now, I don't know what those labels are and how deep they go, but it's not hard to imagine how rules-based parts of the algorithm could work. So if I was labeling links, and I mean, I've audited, I've probably audited millions of links over, over the years, and I did kind of create my own rules-based system that was very accurate to like maybe 90 to 95% accurate, uh, and I was trying to make this algorithm to um, uh, audit links for me, and I realized that there were certain ones I just couldn't catch with my algorithm, and I went back to manually auditing links. Um, but let's say I was tasked with actually creating these labels. I'd probably have labels like low quality directory link or keyword anchored link in, or maybe keyword anchored isn't the right word, maybe commercially anchored link in an article that seems low quality or a link from a social bookmarking site. I mean, we don't do that anymore, but that type of link used to be heavily uh, uh, seen in my link audits for penguin hit sites. So we can, and we have argued over many years what Google has the ability to measure. But the reality is that Penguin essentially took a long list of complicated rules in the form of an algorithm, and then they applied that to the entire web. Now let's go back again to Jackie's answer. She said, I was the project manager for images, video, and local universal. Three teams that focus on including the best results when there are images, videos, or places. For each of these teams, I could easily understand and remember how the rules worked. I would frequently look at random searches and their results and think, did we include the right images for this search? If not, how could we have done better? And when we asked that question, we were usually able to think of signals that would have helped. So most of us as SEOs, we are used to trying to figure out Google's rule-based algorithms. If your site saw a drastic drop in traffic on April 24th, 2012, then you could assume that Google made changes to their rules, in this case, Penguin, that had bad consequences for your site. And in some cases, we can figure those out. We can reverse engineer them. 
And much of Google's algorithms, I still think are rule-based today. And there are certain things that we can figure out that if we do this, then it probably should result in higher rankings. Now, this particular line though, in Rand's article really struck me as interesting. He said, today, however, Google proudly talks about how its modern rankings are built by deep learning algorithms. I thought that was interesting because usually when we ask anyone in Google search, whether they're using machine learning in their algorithms, the answer is either no, or we get no answer. I asked Danny Sullivan uh, earlier this week, and I, I don't believe he responded to me. I didn't see it if he did, um, whether machine learning uh, is being used to greater depth now. And, uh, you know, Danny just didn't want to answer it. Um, so when Rand said that Google proudly talks about how its rankings are built by deep learning algorithms, I had to give this another think. So I keep talking about this movie, Trillions of Questions. It's, it's labeled uh, on YouTube as a home movie by Google. I, I think it's going to be my new quality raters guidelines for a bit because I keep watching it over and over again. I've got the transcript open and I'm taking so many notes from it uh, pretty much all day long. It, it starts off by saying that there's billions of people asking trillions of questions in hundreds of languages, expecting someone to give them an answer in under one second. And then they say, who would sign up for a challenge like that? And they go on to talk about how Google solved these problems. It's so fascinating. So they talk about how the quality raters are used. And this is really important for us to understand because the people who argue against machine learning being used in the algorithm, their main complaint is that the bias of the search quality raters is going to impact the search results. They're worried that, for example, say the majority of the raters were Democrats. The concern would be that due to their biases, Republican-leaning content might not rank as well. Not on purpose, but just as a side effect from the bias of those Democrat quality raters. So in the movie, they give a really good explanation of how the quality raters are used. And when I saw this, it really felt to me that it would be very hard for bias to be included in this process. Uh, but you know, I mean, I don't think it's impossible. And I do think that Google has checks for that as well. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but for those of you who don't have time to watch the whole video, cause it's an hour long, they start off by saying, uh, this, giving this example, perhaps Google has an engineer that has a great idea on how to improve search and they get approval to start working on this idea. That's going to improve the search results. So who knows, maybe they're seeing a type of low quality spammy medical website and it's finding its way onto the first page and they want to implement code, not against that specific website, but to make it so that the tactics that they're using to get them to rank well will no longer be effective. Now I made that task up. That's not in the movie, but I don't think I'm that far off. Google engineer, Paul Har, his bio, it says his mission in search is to reduce the amount of fringe search rankings, such as Holocaust deniers. We've talked about that in the past and scientific and medical theories that are not backed by scientific consensus. So I bet you Paul Har has a whole team of smart engineers working and implementing code changes that could help improve the SERPs, especially when it comes to alternative medical searches. So let's say Paul Har or somebody on his team comes up with some code that's going to improve Google's algorithm. What the video says is quote, 
And you're like, no, you can't launch it. You've got to prove that this is actually good. So they go on to prove that, or they go on to say that proof comes from data and data comes from experiments, side-by-side tests where results from the current version of Google search are compared to the proposed version. And if the proposed version gives better quality results, uh, such as linking to better quality websites from the SERPs, then it gets closer to being put into production. So it's at this point that they start talking about the quality raters. They say, quote, the people at Google aren't deciding what's a good result from a bad result. The people at Google aren't determining what results to show for any given query, but rather the raters are basically teaching our computers what's good and what's bad. When I heard that, It really made me stop and think. The raters are basically teaching our computers what's good and what's bad. I wonder what they mean by teaching our computers. It might be as simple as a vote. Like maybe a certain percentage of quality raters simply have to mark page B as being better than page one in order for the test to be considered for further further for production. But who knows? It, It might go deeper. Let's say the quality raters were given two sets of search results to analyze, and the one with the code change implemented ends up surfacing an article that on the surface looks good, but in reality contains something that's described in the quality raters guidelines as a sign of low quality. Let me give you an example of this. Um, The latest change to the quality raters guidelines had Google give uh, the raters more specific information on how to understand whether searchers needs have been met. And the example given was if the query uh, was how many octaves are there on a guitar and the page that's returned has high EAT, but is actually talking about octaves on a piano, then this, even though it's a high EAT page, it didn't meet the needs of searchers. So let's say this test is put in front of them and it surfaces a page that doesn't meet the needs of users. The quality raters, they're going to mark that. So then what happens? So basically, you know, I don't know how many raters uh, rate each test, but I'm sure they figure out what's statistically significant. And so let's say that uh, a a statistically significant number of quality raters um, have said, look, this uh, have marked this particular site as ranking well when it has uh, not done a good job at meeting the needs of searchers. In a rules-based system, The Google engineer, so this would be Paul Haar or his team or whoever is doing this work, they would figure out what can they tweak in the algorithm so that this doesn't happen. They can brainstorm on what rules can they change? What weights could they change in the algorithm? What new rules could they implement so that, uh, you know, not so that this specific site stops ranking, but that that type of thing doesn't happen and doesn't work to produce better rankings in general. But now I'm wondering if maybe it's not the engineers themselves that figure out which weights to change. Because that's basically machine learning. I think it's quite possible that machine learning could figure out, look, when we weigh this element more, or we include this framework for measuring trust, or whatever it is that produces results that the quality raters consistently say are in lines with the guidelines, maybe it's the machines that are changing the algorithm, and that's machine learning. Again, I keep going back to this line that struck me the most in this video that uh, about Google, trillions of searches. The people at Google aren't deciding what is a good or a bad result. 
Again, the raters are basically teaching our computers what's good and what's bad. I love how the movie explains how Google's algorithms are evolving. They say, as long as there have been machines, humans have tried to get those machines to do more. (laughs) They talked about using punch cards back in the day to, to weave loom, and then how punch cards did more with computers, and then how computers got screens and we could write code when we got keyboards. And basically, computers have evolved a lot in the last little while. And they end up by saying how their goal really is to understand language better. That's how they end this whole progression from, hey, computers were great for weaving loom back a couple hundred years ago, and now these are the advances that we're making. You and I are used to searching, and this is the example in the movie, Uh, we would do a a Google search for something like ice cream shop 27705, you know, ice cream shop zip code, uh, or postal code for my Canadian friends. Um, But really what we meant was, where can I get some ice cream around here? They say, quote, as we understand language better, you should be able to ask a question in a much more natural way. And then they describe the use of Google's natural language processing. So at 42.29 on this video, Ben Gomes says, uh, Ben Gomes, vice president of search at Google, Google has been doing research in something called machine learning for almost a decade. Almost a decade. They're definitely using machine learning in the algorithm. Google's Jeffrey Hinton, so he's a cognitive psychologist and computer scientist, and he's really well known for work on artificial neural networks and uh, does a lot of machine learning stuff. He was asked what impact he hoped that deep learning had, this is again from this movie, uh, on our future, and he said, I hope it allows Google to read documents and understand what they say and deliver much better search results to you. They then go on to say that a few years later, a new development in natural language processing was announced, and this was called BERT. And we've talked a lot about BERT over the last few months. Uh, The movie says, research like this gets us closer to technology that can truly understand language. The movie then cuts to a scene showing some really important people at Google going into a meeting room, and they say it's going to be up to them to figure out how to get BERT working in search. They named their project DeepRank after the deep learning methods used by BERT and the ranking aspect of search, and also because it sounds cool. (laughs) That's what they say in the video. DeepRank. Sounds cool. DeepRank. So... This is a lot of stuff. It's a lot of heavy stuff. Now, Google fully admits that DeepRank's not even close to perfect. I really liked how they talked about how the team tests their theories and months go by and progress is slow. And they go on to talk about specific examples where their understanding of language as they're trying to figure out DeepRank and BERT where it failed. So one of these examples that they gave was what temperature should you preheat your oven to when cooking fish? Without DeepRank, the search algorithms that Google um, had, they were surfacing good information about cooking fish, but they were also getting confused showcasing a recipe for baking cookies. When DeepRank was tested on this query, though, it understood that the results were supposed to be about cookies, and it reduced the prominence of the incorrect recipe and instead elevated useful, relevant information about cooking fish. So in other words, DeepRank helped Google understand 
that, oh, even though our algorithms thought that this one post was relevant, it's not. And I think that many of you who have seen drops in traffic with the December core update, probably the May core update as well, and maybe even before that, you're actually, this is why Google says, you know, sometimes it's not that a website's particularly doing anything wrong. It's just that they figured out that you're maybe not the most relevant result to show people. So they end this movie by talking about the launch committee that determines whether a proposed change to search is going to be actually implemented. And in this case, they ticked off this big box saying, yes, this change was going to be implemented. And the decision was to launch DeepRank. So let's go back again to Rand's discussion on inferred links versus actual links. Now that we have this knowledge that Google's been working on this huge advancement, their understanding of language. So links are still a component of Google's algorithms and they're likely very, very important. Links help Google to find content. And I do think that some links still pass tremendous value, but I also believe Google when they say that they ignore the vast majority of links on the web. Remember that example about cardigans in Rand's post? In the first example, there was no link, just a recommendation that seemed to be unbiased. At least it did to me. In the second, it was a keyword anchored link. Rand's point in his article is that mentions, recommendations, legitimate votes for your content are the types of things that can help your website rank better, even if they are not links. And I agree with him. I mean, we can argue whether machine learning is being used to determine the weights that make up rankings, but there's no doubt that machine learning is being used in understanding language and that this has been a huge goal for Google for a long time now. DeepRank got launch approval in 2017. It didn't go live until 2019. And according to a search engine land article, DeepRank was actually the internal code name for the BERT launch that Google announced in October of 2019. Again, BERT represents Google's better understanding of language. This is really interesting to me because in November of 2019, in the beginning of November, there was an update, uh, November 8th, that we thought was a link-related update. And whenever we see an update that's significant enough for us to analyze, one of the things that we look at is how many of our link audit clients were affected. We also look back at past reports and we see, uh, you know, have we recommended a disavow for this particular site that didn't do well? And one of the patterns that we noticed with this November 8th update of 2019 was that a lot of the sites that have been impacted were involved in getting links that just really weren't recommendations. They weren't overtly black hat links. I'm talking about links from roundup posts or guest posts or, Hey, if you like this chocolate chip cookie recipe, then here's five more. And it's pretty much a link wheel, that type of thing. And for a little while, we thought that maybe this was a link related update, but I actually think that what we were seeing was now Bert. Again, November 8th uh, follows just a couple of weeks after Google published uh, this document on their, uh, their progression with BERT and how BERT is going to change search as we know it. Um, so I don't know whether BERT was being used to determine whether links were truly recommendations and whether to count those or whether BERT just got better at figuring out which content was relevant. Um, and as such, they turned down the weighting on links because if they got better at determining, uh, the, 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 the language in content, then they can put less emphasis on relying on links on the web. 
In other words, there, there may have been a lot of links that used to help, but now don't help so much and could maybe even cause a reduction in rankings. So what we don't know is exactly how Google's using DeepRank and BERT. We know that their ultimate goal is to understand better what a searcher wants and understand which pieces of content uh, or what it is that the searcher wants to see. So usually those will be from sites that exhibit a lot of EAT. And that's probably some discussion that we should save for another day. I was going to go into more detail here, but I think we've talked enough about this article so far for today. There was a comment on the article from Chris Roadruck, uh, who's been in SEO uh, long before I was. I, I really, uh, uh, I, I used to really read all of his stuff um, back, gosh, 10 years ago or so. And Chris said, uh, uh, was essentially saying that this theory on inferred links, it's nice and all. But without the publisher having the ability to say, you know, whether they endorse an, a link, it could cause a lot of problems. But in my mind, those problems are solved with our understanding of EAT and also Google's understanding of language. I'm going to end this discussion here because I, I probably could go on for a long time on these thoughts and I'm probably going to reach out to Rand, I think, and maybe see if he wants to discuss this. Who knows? I've only ever had one guest on podcast and that was John Mueller. But uh, if Rand will come and talk to me about his theory, I think this could really help all of us uh, to learn what it is that Google is valuing. Um, so I, you know, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I, I really learned a lot in putting it together. If you're interested at all in hiring my team, uh, to help make your website one that searchers and search engines love, then you can find us at mariehaines.com slash help, uh, or sorry, slash contact or email us at help at mariehaines.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I wish you the best of luck with your rankings. Mm -hmm.